Coming up next, Book TV presents Afterwards, an hour-long program where we invite guest hosts to interview authors. This week, acclaimed essayist and author Alain de Baton and his latest release, Religion for Atheists. In his book, he argues that rather than mocking religion, atheists and agnostics should steal the best ideas from world religions, such as the methods for building strong communities, overcoming envy, and forging a connection to the natural world. The philosopher-essayist discusses his concepts with former seminarian and author Chris Hedges. Alain, I wanted to ask you first, sort of broadly, about the vision that you put forth in Religion for Atheists, which is a kind of utopian sort of look at or, or restructuring or reformation of secular society. Uh, and I thought maybe just sort of broadly you could lay out um, uh, some of the ideas in the book. Mm. I suppose my starting point is secular society has not worked everything out. In other words, once we reject religion, if we reject religion, um, we still have some gaps. There are some problems with the way secular society runs. And it struck me that many of these gaps um, could best be understood through the prism of religion, that we have secularized, I say in my book, we've secularized badly in the sense that we've thrown out a lot of stuff um, which was associated with religion um, and which is now absent from contemporary secular life, but which we would do well to revisit. So what I do is um, look systematically through uh, three faiths, Christianity, Buddhism, and Judaism, asking myself always one question. What here might we use? What here might inspire? Is there stuff here that we've left behind that we could, in giving up the doctrinal side of religion, um, nevertheless have benefited from? That's my starting point. And so I look at areas like community, education, ethical structure, uh, art and architecture, the notion of an institution, which, of course, the faiths are, um, and a few other things uh, besides. And you have some sort of very specific proposals, um, you know, examples from religious life that you essentially would like to see secularized and incorporated into the wider society. Perhaps you can sort of expound upon some of those. Sure. Well, one of the areas that I look at is education. And it strikes me that religions are, in a way, giant educational machines. Um, now, in the secular world, we take education really seriously. Um, and a lot of money is devoted to institutes of higher education. And when people are trying to understand why we educate, um, one answer is skills for jobs, for the economy, you know, to compete, to be a competitive economy. That's simple enough. But there's another more noble sounding ambition, which creeps in during the more lyrical passages of politician speeches or graduation ceremonies. And that's the idea that education should be a source of guidance, that it should help you to live, that it should be uh, an education of your soul. Uh, it should help you to find meaning, consolation, ethical structure. In other words, that's quite a religious ambition. And in my book, what I do is I trace it and I say that started in the 19th century. As church attendance began to collapse in many parts of Western Europe, people asked themselves the question, how are we going to replace many of these good things from religion, ethics, structure, meaning? And an influential group of people like Matthew Arnold and John Stuart Mill came up with what I think remains a really intriguing idea. They said, culture will replace scripture, culture with a capital C, the plays of Shakespeare, the dialogues of uh, Plato, the novels of Jane Austen. In these texts, in these works, there are 
possibilities for replacing a lot of the direction and ethics and structure of uh, organized religions. Now, I think it's an intriguing idea. It's also an idea that has totally disappeared. I mean, if you pitched up at a modern university, say you went to Harvard or Cambridge University or Oxford, and you said, you know, the reason I'm here is that I want to learn how to live and die. I want to know what's good and bad. I want to find meaning. I want to cope with my own mortality. Um, you know, the guys would be dialing the number for the insane asylum. It's simply not an ambition that we're allowed to bring to bear uh, upon secular education. And I think the reason for that is there's an idea that basically people are, once, and once you're an adult, you're kind of together. You, you, know, you don't need particular help. Um, the business of life is simple. You, you, know, you need to get married and have a family and find a job you love and watch your parents die and confront your own mortality and then put yourself in a coffin. But basically, all of that is easy. You kind, of, you kind of know how to do it if you're an adult. Um, and the only people who need help are stupid people, and they read self-help books. That's the kind of dominant secular elite ideology. So the idea of relevance and assistance and didacticism is absent. Now, if you look at religion, religions start from a completely different point of view. Their view is we're all of us only just holding it together. We are desperate. We are vulnerable. And we need assistance right through every stage of life. Uh, we need wisdom. And I don't necessarily agree with the wisdom that is on offer through religions. I agree intermittently, but I'm fascinated by the analysis of our fragility. I think that's fascinating and true, truer than the secular model. And that leads me to think that if I was um, the emperor of all space and time, I would want to rejig how um, wisdom is transmitted down the generations. Uh, I would argue that the humanities should go back to that 19th century vision, that neo-religious vision of using culture as scripture. I think that remains a very good idea, um, sadly neglected. So that's where I'd be. More than neglected, probably assaulted. Um, if, you, if you look, I, I, certainly within the United States, we now only have 100,000 college graduates a year majoring in any branch of the humanities. Yeah. Um, all of these institutions like Harvard and Yale began to train ministers. Um, they made that transition, the one you referred to uh, as expounded by Arnold and Mill. Uh, but, uh, you know, in major universities, uh, departments, philosophy departments are being shut. Uh, University of uh, Albany just shut down all their foreign language departments, their classics mm -hmm. department. Um, in some ways, didn't that experiment fail? Yes, I think the fault is, I mean, often people say... Um, you know, the world is crass and materialistic, and the fault for this is, you know, governments or horrible donors or stupid students, you know, etc. I have to say, with respect, the fault really lies in the humanities themselves, that they have failed to properly make a case for their importance. Their vision of scholarship has unfortunately been hijacked by a sort of neo-scientific idea that research is what matters and that one can research, you know, poetry like one can research a scientific problem. And um, this has put generations of students off that the humanities have committed suicide by being so cut off from the questions. I mean, it's extraordinary when you think about it. Um, there is enormous innate interest in the question of how to live. I mean, it's everywhere. The idea that the humanities departments have reached a stage where they are so cut off from the spontaneous curiosity of people that they're having to shut down, the problem lies with these departments. They have simply failed 
to analyze the needs of their audiences and to realize that the material they're sitting on, the culture they are sitting on, is a resource to live by. Uh, and that if they handled it like that, uh, their departments would be opening rather than closing. This is Harold Bloom's argument. I don't know if you've read any of his stuff on the Western canon. Uh, and of course, he faults uh, the academic hierarchy itself. Yeah, which I think you're doing. Yeah, they've brought it upon themselves. I feel sorry for them. Many innocent people are, you know, being sacrificed in the name of this corrupt ideology. But, um, you know, we all know it, you know it. There is appetite out there uh, for knowledge, wisdom, structured argument, etc. And yet, weirdly, it goes on outside the university. The university has, which should have been the center, it should have been our monasteries, it should have been the place outside of the press of capitalism, where the best arguments could be made and rehearsed and wisdom taught and transferred. That dream, and it really is a dream, it's a dream written into the architecture of America's colleges for the most part, that dream has been betrayed and they're paying a financial price. And while I'm sorry, I can only think they have brought it upon themselves. Well, Bloom, Bloom would argue that for those who truly grasp, as you point out, the importance of art and literature, there's no place for them anymore within the university. These people have to exist outside the university. And I think you That's would right. sort of agree with that. That's right. Um, yeah. The problem is, of course, they are disorganized and then weak. And one of the things that religion teaches us is if you want to get something to have power in the world, you need to organize. You need to self-organize. So, you know, the problem of the lone you know, would be academic in their bedroom writing a book, you know, it's much weaker. Um, and if you look at how powerful religions are, it's because of their capacity to organize themselves properly. And it was that Mill and Arnold's dream was the secular world will organize itself around the universities. It's failed to do that. Right. And so you propose to create new institutions? Well, I certainly in propose a, a method of rescuing our, our existing ones, uh, recreating departments along, you know, it seems striking to me that the departments in higher education all reflect academic disciplines rather than questions of the soul. So you have a literature department, which is a completely nonsensical category. Um, really what a literature department is, is a literature of, is, is a department of human relationships. That's really what it's about. So let's have the department of human relationships. Let's have the department of loving and dying, not the department of anthropology or whatever. So the fact the academic discipline comes first is part of the sickness of the university. It's part of putting the cart before the horse. I want to talk a little bit about institutions here. I, I grew up in the church and I, as I was telling you before, you're, although an atheist, far kinder to the institution than I would be. Um, you uh, have a kind of healthy respect for institutions. Um, there is certainly a strain within uh, Christian thought that argues that with Constantine III century, the rise of the Christian church did as much to pervert and distort and deform the radical message of the gospel as uh, perpetuate it. Yeah. I think, I think we have to be careful because certainly the temper of the modern world, it's a Protestant idea, uh, is that the institution is corrupt, that true religion resides in the individual heart, and that any agglomeration of people is, is corrupt. While that's no doubt true at certain points, um, it's also true that we have to understand what is good about institutions, which is that they're able to agglomerate money, power, intelligence, and can simply have a reach that the individual will never have. So, um, you know, I'm aware that in the secular world, there are lots of people trying to change the world by writing books, right? Writing a book is the dominant method. And 
we found atheists writing books to attack religion, for example. So, you know, Dawkins, Hitchens, right. etc. They want to bring that, bring religion down. So what do they do? They write a book. Problem about writing a book is that you're using one instrument to deal with something which is utterly unsuited to being attacked by that instrument. A book can't do very much because what you're dealing with, with a religion, is an institution, which is a book. Of course, books are central to religions, but religions are also community centers, uh, educational machines, um, travel agencies, music halls, uh, you know, they, they, they're involved in so many different activities. And to think that a book can sort of sharply and sarcastically just blow this whole thing up is, is to misunderstand what you're dealing with. And um, as I say, I think that we're not short of very good ideas in a secular humanist world. The problem is those ideas generally don't have traction. And they don't have traction because they are not part of an organized uh, system. So, for example, we have lots of professors and people writing wonderful books about ethics, how to live an ethical life, lots of stuff. Um, and yet, you know, go outside in the streets of New York now. Is it happening? No. Why is it not happening? Because there is not that thing that religions are masters at, which is the union of theory and practice. That, that's what's fascinating to me about religions. They are unified uh, things so that they have a branch of them sits some uh, intellects in, in a corner and gets them to write the books. But then there's also a group of people who will be producing woodcuts that can be read by anyone, or we're producing, you know, advertising billboards now in the modern world, or building cathedrals. And, and it's a kind of, you know, it's what the Germans would call a Gesamtkunstwerk, a total work of art. Um, it isn't a work of art as such, but it has that element of totality. It's basically saying to people, we're not just trying to access you through your brain, through your reason, through you know, your, your intellect. We are going to touch you at a variety of moments in the day through a variety of media. Um, and the secular world doesn't seem to recognize that. You know, We've got advertising and the luxury industries and um, the construction industry on one side, and then we've got you know, the intellectuals in, in another. What you have to understand about religion, it's a union of those. It's, it's construction and it's fashion and it's music and it's the intellect all as one, embedded, pushing one thing. Um, and I think this point is often missed. So to what extent does the consumer society, and you talk in the book about uh, public relations mm. and uh, selling, I think you talk about them sort of catering to people's needs. Yep. But of course, what they're actually doing is catering to their emotional deficiencies. That's right. That's right. I mean, there's that, always that classic distinction in Greek philosophy between needs and desires, and that to lead a good life, you have to be able to distinguish those appetites in you which are legitimate and linked to serious need from those which are vain and flighty and, and, and evanescent linked to your fugitive desires, and that part of a good life is knowing how to separate that. We've lost that sense that we need help in doing that. I mean, the, the consumer society is based on the idea that the individual can make up their own choice. The individual is robust. They can make the difference between needs and desires. Maybe little children can't. So before seven o'clock or something, you maybe can't show a certain kind of advert. But basically, adults will be able to judge their true needs. So you can have a massive poster in front of them saying, go to Thailand on holiday and be happy. And it won't have an effect at all. That's why we can have these posters. Of course, the advertising industry recognizes that it does have an effect, a huge impact. That's why advertising is a business. Um, so, but then, of course, the next logical step is to ask, well, what are we doing allowing a system to take place which willingly confuses needs and desires um, and therefore um, prevents us from possibly accessing our best possibilities, helps us to ruin our lives? Um, 
And religion is rather an interesting uh, kind of model because really what it says is you do need advertising all around, but you need the right kind of advertising. You need reminders of how to live well because we're per permanently being pulled in different directions. And that's how a lot of uh, organized religions function, that they, they have billboards, literally, whether that billboard is a cathedral or a temple, uh, or, or, or it could actually be a billboard. It, it's, it's an attempt to say you need some support. The whole of religious art is really an attempt to support a set of ideas. It's a kind of propaganda. It's a massive tool to propagandize on behalf of some ideas. Isn't it also a way to delineate space between the sacred and the profane? Um, yes. Um, to, to create uh, an area where you will take time out from your normal life in which the values that are most close to your heart and close to the truth can get a, a full uh, chance to express themselves. This is, yes, this is the sacred space. This is the, the cathedral, the church, the temple, the mosque. Um, you withdraw from the hub of the city and you're back with your true self. Um, and again, you see, if I look at that, my first question is to say, okay, what are we doing with that need now? Where's that need gone now? You know, if, if this was a serious need taken seriously by religions for thousands of years, where's it gone? What are we doing with it? And, you know, people would say, well, there's the museum, um, to which, well, in my book, I argue quite a lot about why museums are not quite doing their, their job properly. So there are many, many ways in which stuff that religions are quite aware of in terms of our inner needs have gone unattended in the secular world. There are certainly religious scholars who would argue that, and of course, religious systems are uh, created by humankind uh, and oftentimes serve uh, the interests, uh, not so much of uh, religious tenets, but for those who run them. Uh, the, the history of the Catholic Church is a pretty sordid one. Um, uh, what about those sort of critics who would say, well, uh, uh, religion itself or, or institutional religion is, uh, to quote the theologian Tillich, uh, inherently demonic, including the church, um, and that uh, oftentimes religious institutions serve as much as an impediment towards the capacity for transcendence or transformation, um, that, that the religious impulse, that, that those uh, those yearnings to, to describe, articulate, and honor the non-rational forces in life, uh, be beauty, grief, the struggle for our own mortality, all the things that you've written about, um, that, uh, that one has to make a very sharp distinction between the institutions and the religious impulse. And in, in many cases, and you know, I covered the war in the former Yugoslavia, the religious institutions signed on for the crusades of ethnic cleansing i mean they were they they lent their they gave a kind of sacred authority to murder look um without wishing in any way to underplay the terrible role of institutions um we also have to accept that institutions can make things possible that are not possible when it's just the individual and i think maybe to take the heats out of the out of the argument it, it helps to look at other areas other than religion, where many of the same things happen. I mean, take the arts and the humanities, we've been discussing it. Um, you know, the, the university as a system um, has the same kind of relationship between uh, the spontaneous inner impulse and the system. So take, take the impulse to read poetry. Um, you can read poetry on your own and you can have some wonderful feelings, private feelings, very pure feelings. Um, 
then you can go to an institution, you have a terrible time. They'll corrupt your understanding of poetry. They'll get involved in departmental struggles. They'll misappropriate funds. They'll abuse students. There'll be sexual scandals. Um, and the institution will be horribly kind of corrupt, right? So you have the same kind of dichotomy, the purity of the individual response, the, the perversion and corruption and violence and greed of the institution. This, this is not just a religious issue, this is a human issue. Now, how are we to look at that? Um, my answer is neither one is the perfect answer, that you need both and that both can go wrong. You can have the personal response that goes wrong because it's not properly guided, because it has no traction, because it just is too, it's squeezed out by the pressures of life. So actually, you don't read the poetry. Your religious impasse is, is squashed because you're watching television, you know, or, or whatever. So, you know, let's not romanticize the individual genius, spontaneous, you know, person on the hill who feels alone. Um, and at the same time, while respecting the terribleness that can afflict all institutions, all you know, businesses, churches, uh, etc., um, they are nevertheless able at their best moments to do extraordinary things like build a cathedral, like commission in a Bach's mass in B minor, or Heathrow's Terminal 5, or the Airbus A380. You know, in other words, when humans come together to do big things, um, the result can be very impressive, but of course, it can also be destructive. So I think we should stop being obsessed with religion as an anomaly in the corruption that afflicts it. Um, it is no more or less prey to corruption as an institution than any other human institution. And if you look at the history of you know, General Motors compared to the history of the Catholic Church, now, history of General Motors is only going a few, you know, decades. Um, but even in those decades, you will find just as much, you know, venality, corruption, abuse, um, you know, terrible stuff in the history of General Motors, as you will in a, in a representative chunk of the history of the Catholic Church. Now, spread the history over hundreds of years, and the Catholic Church starts looking really bad, but it has been going for hundreds of years. So let's beware of um, romanticizing the individual and demonizing the institution. Both have their problems. Although General Motors, I mean, you could say that, you know, it, it certainly embraces the ideology of capitalism, but it doesn't, uh, and, and you're right, I mean, you look back certainly before the Reformation, the, the Catholic Church was a totalitarian entity, uh, which ruled as much through fear uh, and the threat of damnation uh, as anything else, um, that there was a kind of power, especially in pre-literate Europe, uh, which the church certainly yeah. abused. But these were violent times, and you know, compared to the power that existed during, in, you know, in, in normal government at that time. I mean, this was a vi the violence ruled in families. This was an age when, uh, you know, children couldn't answer to their parents, where wives didn't exist as legal entities, um, where the whole notion of being a subject was not part of the common law. So, I mean, we're dealing with violence right across the board. And to say, you know, the church in 1400 was a bastion of intolerance, you know, that's to narrow. I mean, I mean look, I'm an atheist. I don't, you know, I don't see why I should spend my time defending the Catholic Church. But all, all I'm saying is, let's set it. I'm also a historian, and I know that, you know, set in its context, um, uh, you know, the average monastery was not better or worse than the average uh, kingship. So, you know, let's set that, you know, these were violent days. Let me ask you about, you, you quote Spinoza, you quote Nietzsche, and at one point in the book, you uh, talk about how difficult, which of course is true, uh, radical intellectuals, those 
uh, figures like Spinoza or Nietzsche who challenge an entire system, superstructure, the assumptions of an age, uh, uh, both essentially cast out uh, not only by the institutions, I mean, uh, Spinoza was uh, tried and denounced as a heretic. Um, and you, I wonder if those figures can ever be comfortable in any institution. Um, you seem to propose that it's possible. Mm. Well, I, you know, reading about Nietzsche's life, he longed for company. He looked back to ancient Greece and Rome and the fellowship of philosophers at, at that time. Epicurus and his garden held a huge allure for him. He wanted to be, he wanted to be part of a team, but he was living in 19th century Europe in the German university system, which, um, you know, was even less tolerant than the university system now, but it's, you know, along similar grounds. They didn't recognize that they had in their midst a top quality thinker and didn't give him a job. Would he have wanted a job? He was desperate for a job. He didn't want to be an outcast at the top of a mountain, um, you know, speaking his claims to an audience of four. Uh, he wanted to be a professor at Basel University, but he was kicked out. So, you know, we should beware of interpreting a romantic uh, uh, view that, um, you know, people like Nietzsche, you know, just wanted to be on their own because it's it's nice to live out of a suitcase roaming around Europe. You know, no, um, it's really great to be the professor of X or Y, but you know, so long as you can say what you want to say. Um, and that's what Nietzsche himself dreamt of. Oh, that's true. But I wonder whether institutions have ever embraced thinkers who have sort of dynamited the entire superstructure on which social, political, and economic assumptions are mm -hmm. based. I mean, Marx would be another example. I, I, it, again, it gets back to that sort of conflict between individual morality, as Niebuhr writes, no institution can ever achieve the morality of an individual because finally institutions are always concerned about their own perpetuation mm -hmm. and their own survival, whereas an individual is capable of mm. making a choice and sacrificing that. Sure, I, but I think you know, there are institutions which better or worse address the needs of the individual. And I think that's really what interests me. You know, when I look at, we were talking about the humanities and how they're not particularly addressing the needs of their students. And that's why people don't want to study there. You know, that's the people voting with their feet. Take another institution like the world of museums. You know, and, and you often hear it said that nowadays, churches, uh, museums are our new churches. There are new cathedrals. And what's going on there? What people are saying is, these are institutions where you will find the same solemnity, reverence, and enrichment for your soul as you might have gone to religions for. Now, when I look at that, I think, well, that's kind of interesting, good in theory. And then I go to the museum and I think, hmm, I'm not sure this is all going right. Because I think, again, the museum has fallen prey to a method of uh, presenting its art that is too cut off from the lessons of religion. Religions use art in a very simple way. They use it as a way of um, helping us to know how to live. It's a reminder, religious art is a reminder of how we should live, an expression of gratitude uh, and a warning for you know, all sorts of ways in which we shouldn't live. Um, that sounds really odd when compared with you know, what might be going on at the Museum of Modern Art or whatever. Um, uh, we don't expect that art should have much of an intention upon us. That's the modern curatorial system. Modern curatorial system is put objects in a white space, um, put a minimal caption, and you know, get the crowds through. But really, this is not revolutionary, either at the level of the individual or of society general. It exists in the world of art. And so writing my book, I was struck by the way in which 
religions as institutions use art in far more adventurous, provocative ways. Um, and it's just one example of how I see, you know, lessons that can be pulled out of religion by a non-believer and applied to try and get some of the things in the modern world to go a little bit better. And yet the Renaissance was a reaction to the restrictions placed upon art. I mean, Botticelli and everyone else. Yes. Although I think what's interesting about the Renaissance is that it, it kept true to the didactic ambition of religious art and indeed Roman and Greek art. Because Roman and Greek art is exactly like religious art. It wants to guide you and know how to live. Which so, had been an anathema under the church, Roman and Greek art. Uh, yes, absolutely. But, but that ambition that art should be a guide to life is, is there both in Christianity and in pagan thought. And it only disappears in the 19th century under that rather unhelpful idea that art should be for art's sake. And the idea that the artist is a lone figure who creates works that are ambiguous. And so that the dominant feeling you get leaving the museum is, what did that mean? Mm. You, know, uh, or, you know, and the, the, the catalogue seems like it was translated badly from the German. In other words, you, you, you're not quite sure what your response should be. That is the modernist elite view of art. Art is an ambiguous uh, uh, medium. And the more complex a work of art, the harder it will be to say what that work of art is about. But, you know, religions, you know, take a, take a Rembrandt uh, painting like Christ Crossing the Sea of Galilee. It's a piece of propaganda. It's a very mm. simple piece of propaganda. It's a propaganda on the part of, on behalf of courage. It's basically, you're supposed to look at that and remember what courage is. And it's very complex as a work of art in terms of its technical, formal qualities. But it's very simple at the level of its moral. And that's a, that's a situation that we have a hard time accepting in the modern world. You know, how could something both be really simple morally and yet really complicated and sort of noble at the, as a work of art? We, we expect that, you know, that's not going to be the case. Although secular artists did it, Picasso, Guernica, Goya. Yep. Yes, I mean, absolutely. You see some artists and the greatest artists, I think, absolutely have that. I think the problem, weirdly, is not the artists. It's the system in which they operate. You know, Mark Rothko, take Mark Rothko, um, fascinating artist, very didactic impulses. Um, I remember going to see Rothko's paintings at the Tate Gallery in London as a teenager, thinking, I wonder what this is about. I wonder what it's for. I can sense a mood and it's kind of powerful. But I looked at the caption and it just said, Mark Rothko, American abstract expressionist, born in, died in. I didn't really know what it was all about. Read some books on him, didn't really get a sense. And then years, years later, I read an interview with him. So the interviewer said to him, what are you trying to do with your art? And he said, I want my art to be a place where the sadness that is common to all of us can find a refuge mm. and a focus. I thought, wow. That's, that's pretty simple. You could write that on a postcard. Do I, do I ever see that on the museum caption? No, I mean, it's anything but. And you find that with a lot of artists. You know, you know if you said to Picasso, what are you doing with Guernica? He would say, I'm trying to stop war. Right. I'm trying to get people to be nice to each other. But when you go to the Picasso Museum, is that ever stated? No, Picasso was influenced by this and the... So in other words, that very simple didactic ambition of the artist has been drained out of it by the curatorial system. So I say that the museum world does to the visible, to visible culture what the academic world does to written culture, which is namely drain it of its revolutionary, therapeutic, didactic possibilities. I, I couldn't agree more. I would have to add that that's what religious institutions do to religion. Interesting, interesting. Um, 
perhaps because I'm an atheist. Um, uh, I don't notice that as much. Um, I'm more impressed by the aspects of religion which seem only to be possible through uh, a collective action. But, you know, I, I defer it, to you in this it area. It strikes me that what, and it's also an admiration that I share, that what moves you is not always so much the institution, but the ritual. Yes. Yes. And and rituals are designed to create sacred space. Yeah. They are designed uh, to uh, honor a reality that goes beyond articulation. Mm. Uh, they are designed, and I think is, this is also something you raise in the book, they are designed to put human beings in their place within the yeah. cosmos. Yeah. Um, and, and that, of course, is the power. There, there is... Uh, um, something brilliant about the Eucharist yeah. and the Mass. I mean, the way I look at it is the ritual is a communal event. It, it, a, a ritual is something that a, that a number of people do that has an impact on the inner self. And again, in the modern world, we imagine that things that happen in your inner self come spontaneously or with communion with, with a, one book uh, or, or maybe one artwork. In other words, there's, the group doesn't touch your soul. Um, and I think what's fascinating about ritual is that it, 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 it's precisely an attempt to say, um, left to your own devices solely, there are things that you're not going to get to. So we need, you know, you're not going to forgive people without Yom Kippur. Uh, you're not going to look at the moon without the Zen Buddhist festival of Tsukimi. Uh, you're not going to properly forgive uh, people without, you know, the Jewish ritual of plunging yourself in a mikveh or whatever. That, that there are these communal rituals which are going to have to take place, um, otherwise uh, your soul will be, will be in trouble. And I'm deeply impressed by this, um, chiefly because, subjectively, I know there is so much that I feel and want to do that I don't do because there is no communal structure. And when people say, yeah, but you know, the world, you know, us atheists, we're brilliant at inventing things. You know, I've had that people say that to me. And I say, oh, really? Great. Well, what is it? And they go, well, we've got birthday parties. And I go, come on, the birthday party? I go, yeah, you know, I went to a 50th, it was great, people read poems and you know, whatever. And, okay, what's wrong? With, of course, there are secular rituals, but they tend not to be structured properly. They tend not to be psychologically rich. Uh, you know, take something like um, Father's Day or Mother's Day, which is a secular ritual, has obviously a religious antecedent, but it's a typically modern, secular, rather stupid ritual. And the reason it's stupid is that it fails to recognize the number one thing, which is that we don't only love our mothers or fathers, we also hate them. They've let us down in all sorts of ways, that the relationship between parent and child is conflicted. And by having an, a, a moment which only honors the positive, uh, it actually makes... Um, a true relationship impossible. So a more intelligent uh, relationship, a more intelligent ritual would start by saying that relationship is conflicted. So we need the ritual to accept that. And that's what's clever about things like, well, things like the bar mitzvah. The bar mitzvah, if you follow a bar mitzvah ceremony, it's full of acknowledging the fact that the parents are sad that the kid right. is growing up. It's basically saying uh, the kid is murdering the father. Right? This is a ritual murder of the father as the next generation grows up. So beneath the festivities and the balloons and the party and the presents, what you've got is an intergenerational you know, uh, murder. And, but it's healed and it's held together and it's done intelligently. And so that for me is the genius of, of, of religious ritual. Well, it expresses, and I, you probably point this out at the beginning of the book, a fundamental truth about existence. 
in the same way that the Greek myths yeah. understood psychological truths. It's why Freud kept going back to yeah. Greek myths and Shakespeare. Yeah. And uh, and I think that I think and I'm certainly in complete agreement with you that. Uh, to ask the question, is this literally true, mm. is absurd mm. from the beginning because even biblical literalists are selectively, uh, you know, uh, they're selective literalists. Yeah. They, they pick and choose what they yeah. want. Yeah. Um, the innumerable contradictions, even within the four Gospels, mm. uh, you know, on all sorts of issues. And I think it's also, it's leaving the individual with so much pressure to assume that, that we as individuals can do all the stuff we need to do just by ourselves. You know, um, I was struck in uh, reading the, the history of religions is there's always in all religions a festival of chaos, a moment when the world is turned upside down, when power relations are reversed, when sexual relations are, are, are reversed, and when in a sense all the craziness, all our perverse impulses are given room for, exp for expression. Um, and, you know, whether it's carnival or you know, the Feast of Fools, or in ancient Greece, the Festival of Dionysus, um, or, or whatever. It's a moment in the calendar where the darkness is allowed to come out into the light and is regulated. Now, that's, what, that's what fascinated Nietzsche in, in, in the Festival of Dionysus, that it's both chaos and structure. It's that wonderful mixture. And in the modern world, what do we do? Well, we get drunk on a Saturday night and beat someone up or break a car or something. It's very Dis uncoordinated, or we have an affair, and you know, it, it's 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 left up to the individual. It's not coordinated. It's not lent dignity. It's not seen as something that we all labour with. So the individual comes to their own realization: Oh, I've got unfaithful impulses, or oh, I've got violent impulses, or oh, I want to punch my boss. And 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 this is seen as a private realization against the backdrop of a kind of sunny, optimistic version vision of man. Religions are much kinder to us in saying. Of course, this stuff's going to be in you. So we're going to try and structure it. We're going to give it a bit of a place in, in the world. Well, it acknowledges the dark impulses right. within humankind, which, of course, in the happy, cheerful, positive psychology world of modernity is completely denied. Right. Which is what I mean, what I love about uh, all the faiths is their pessimism. You know, Christian pessimism right. is wonderful, you know, whether it's Pascal or, uh, you know, in, in Judaism, you know, the book of Job or uh, Buddhist texts that, again, speak of the unutterable, you know, misery of the grasping of, of human nature. These things are incredibly important to read precisely because we live in this sunny world where the assumption is that children are normal creatures rather than half crazy beasts um, and that all of us are mature, you know, sensible people just looking forward to the next vacation rather than people who are you know, torn apart by serious darkness. And I love reading Christian and other you know, Jewish dark texts precisely because um, I think, oh, I'm not alone here. No, there's some, you know, this has been, it's, it's also very dignified. There's, you know, the, the prose or the poetry is beautiful. The language is beautiful. So it expresses those most private, inarticulate sides of ourselves, raises them out of the darkness, places them before us and makes us feel less lonely with some of the most unacceptable stuff that, you know, resides in the human soul. Well, there was no division between art and religion when it began. That's right. And, and I think there should be no longer a division between art and what I call psychology, it, the psyche, that, that division that, that art served the needs of the soul directly with no, it didn't exist in art, the art world. It was just, it was part of ethics. It was part of living. Um, whereas we've, we put it seriously in a corner, 
and we almost don't recognize how much we put it in a corner. But it, it's, not, it's not in the service of life. And yet, uh, you know, both of us love Proust. Proust, certainly for me, gave me a language, gave me a vocabulary to describe aspects of human reality that I had not had before I read Proust. Absolutely. But, you know, it's not the artists. The artists are doing a fine job. It's the way they're presented. I mean, I read a book a few years ago on Proust, How Proust Can Change Your Life. And that got me excommunicated from the university I was in. Uh, the, the feeling was, well, this is not a serious man. If he has written a book called How Proust Can Change Your Life, we don't want him here. He has written a self-help book. And I was happy to go because I thought, we're not seeing eye to eye here. But it, it's symptomatic. It's not Proust that's the problem. It's the structure that we place around Proust. Everything, all works of culture, should be how X can change your life, how Picasso can change your life, how Mondrian can change your life. You know, that's a method um, that we've lost well, at our peril. But more importantly, it's why they wrote it. Absolutely. I mean, the last... Book and a half of Proust is one depth charge after another. Absolutely. This is a man looking for the meaning of life and defining, if you like, a quasi-religious path to redemption. And, and, and he, Proust, who knew a lot about religion, is precisely following, you know, and absolutely. Um, you have some sort of specific ideas um, I want to ask you about yeah. travel agents yeah. and, uh, I mean, I don't need to list them agape yeah. restaurants, but yeah. maybe you can sort of spell some of them out. Well, one of the things I do in my book um, is provoke the reader into thinking, look, what I'm telling you here is not merely a set of ideas. I'm trying to imagine how we might tweak the world and change the world with the help of uh, certain of these concepts that we've been discussing. Um, why do I do that? I think there's a, sort of an assumption that practice is in one area and books are in another, and that books shouldn't suggest practices. Um, and because I'm writing about religion, which are all about the union of practice and theory, it, it seemed exciting and interesting to uh, uh, look at that. So, for example, I'm thinking about perspective and awe. All the major faiths are interested in the feeling of awe. Um, they realize that if you put somebody in a space where they see how small a human occupies, um, small being, uh, how small a human being occupies in the vastness of space or time, there will be a kind of quietening of their soul, of their anxiety, of their pressure to succeed and their ego-driven impulses. That will abate under the night sky, in a cathedral, uh, in a Grand Canyon, wherever it is, you will have a certain kind of feeling, a stilling of the ego, the awe, uh, the, a feeling of awe. Um, so I try and think, okay, religions are unparalleled at doing this. They do this all the time and they're really great. Where do we do this? You know, and people say, okay, we do go to the Grand Canyon, etc. But I try and imagine structuring it a bit more. The stars and astronomy is a vital source of awe. Problem is when you go to uh, a science museum, they'll they'll treat you like you're a scientist. They not they don't treat you like you're looking for awe. They look treat you like you're you know about to work for NASA and are you know, seriously interested in the details of the G one o two galaxy you know three million light years away. You're not. Most of us are not. We're looking to use science or scientific material as our religious forebearers did, in other words, as a source of awe. But the modern museum doesn't allow that. So I try and imagine a space where we might go that maybe might maybe a little bit like a planetarium or a little bit like a science museum, um, where the point would not be to learn, learn about science. It would be to look at scientific phenomena 
for that feeling of awe and its benefits that it, it can bring. I even playfully imagined that these giant screens in Times Square that are currently displaying the stock market data would every now and then get a live feed from the Hubble telescope that surrounds the Earth. And so that as you're walking along, uh, you know, mired in the human anthill, you would look up and you would see some of these galaxies and nebulae um, and suddenly everything would, uh, would change, rather as it changes when you see the towers uh, and spires of Chartres Cathedral uh, across an open field in, in northern France. That same kind of impact, that same collision of your daily self with something you know, public. So, yeah, if anyone who's owning those, uh, uh, those uh, screens in Times Square is watching, let's, let's plug them into the Hubble. And talk a little bit about the... You, you have... You talk about travel, you talk about yes. communal restaurants. Um, I'm interested in the, in the travel business because um, travel is seen by religions as an absolutely fundamental part of a spiritual life. And that's interesting, you know, because we travel a lot as well. So you think, okay, what do, what do, what do they do and what do we do? You're talking about pilgrimages. Yes, pilgrimage, exactly. Um, and what is a pilgrimage? A pilgrimage has many things, but it's, it's really an attempt to use a journey to help your soul. Uh, and we kind of have an impulse in that. And you say, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to go on a journey to try and do something. But we're very unstructured about it. We don't really connect our destinations with our inner needs. The, the real, if you look at the, the so-called travel pages of newspapers, the, the dilemma is always, how do I find the hotel or how do I get a cheaper rate on something? The, the real question of travel is, how do I match the outer world with some evolution in the inner world. That's what religion, that's how religion uses travel. So I try and imagine what a travel agency might be like that have properly studied religion. And it's playful suggestion, but it's a real suggestion, like many of my suggestions. And, and really what you would do is you would have, like you used to do in medieval Christianity before setting out on a pilgrimage, you would visit a priest and you would discuss the state of your soul and the priest would guide you to a destination. Um, he would literally have a map or a book of destinations around Europe and, and your inner life and your outer destination would be matched. Plenty there for the modern travel agent. And you'd walk. <laughs> uh, and you might walk because, again, as religions uh, understand, often the ease of getting there undermines the capacity of a journey to affect a change in us. There is in difficulty um, a uh, metaphor for an inner difficulty. And so by removing all outer difficulties, you undermine our willingness to endure an inner difficulty to change. So, and, of... and the other problem is that people leap, having lived for 20 years in the developing world, from uh, you know, a cloistered industrial environment to, to a replication of that yeah. in a resort. I mean, in fact, they don't travel at all, really. Yeah. Orwell wrote an essay about this yeah. once. Yeah. They don't travel at all. And, um, and they're, they're genuine, rather touching ambitions that they do. You know, people want serious things from their travel. They, they, they travel in order to find themselves, in order to improve a relationship, in order to discover their children, in order to understand the world. You know, these are really, really serious ambitions. And yet how often travel goes wrong, you know, right. uh, because these serious ambitions are not taken seriously by the travel industry. Well, and it's the cruelty of marketing. Absolutely. Right? Where we can be so easily dissuaded, where these noble impulses can be, you know, taken, taken for a ride. To. Yeah. You know, just going off to a club med and it's gonna Bermuda solve. is going to... That's right. That's right. So that's, that's another area. Um, 
I also look at the area of community. And it strikes me that one of the things religions are brilliant at doing is bringing a group of strangers together in an extraordinary, accomplished, beautiful space. And through certain basic actions, basically introduce themselves. They act as hosts. And just like a host at a party will break the ice and allow people to release their humanity and curiosity. So a religious host um, does that with, you know, with a group of uh, congregants. Um, we've lost that ability. A city, a modern city like New York or anywhere is full of bars and restaurants, but these are corrupt visions. These are not communal spaces. They are simulacra of, of, of communities. No one really talks to anyone or only in slightly haphazard uh, ways. Uh, there is, we, we lack any systematic mechanisms for turning the stranger into a friend, which is so core to all religions. All religions have the table at which the stranger can come and can eat and break bread. Um, these are wonderful traditions. Uh, we spend so much time worrying about restaurants and the quality of the, you know, tomatoes there. And, you know, it's nonsense compared to the real ambition of the table. And I suggest in my book, you know, let's get some tables where, we, you know, it doesn't really matter what you're going to eat. The point is friendship and community and that ancient religious, originally religious ideal of breaking bread with a stranger. You don't talk about theater in the book, classical theater. Mm. And I'm wondering, uh, especially having lived in New York after 9-11, and the whole build-up to the Iraq War, the, mm. the one institution mm. uh, that sought to remind us of the horror of war was not, in fact, the church, yeah. which pretty much signed on for the war yeah. as an institution, but theater. Um, and there were numerous productions, uh, the suppliant women, I mean, all sorts of great yeah. stuff yeah. that were done. And theater itself has a kind of sacred quality. Yeah. It, it gives, it, it, it uh, you know, in some kind of way, almost brings back to life our the past, mm. our ancestors. It has a communal quality. Yeah. It has a ritual. I just wondered what your yeah. thoughts were. Um, I, I accept all of that. If I were to criticize theater and a lot, and, and in relation to religion, um, certain religious communal rituals have elements of theater, you know, a mass, etc. But it's not simply what um, uh, that theorists, I think it was uh, Bourdieu, called the society of the spectacle. Um, no, it wasn't. Oh, it, you're it was thinking um, of uh, Guy, Guy Debord. Debord, exactly. Um, what what Debord wisely called the Society of the Spectacle, um, he criticized modern culture for extraordinary things happening on the stage and all of us there, like this. And he, he, he compared this with religious and pre modern societies where there's extraordinary stuff going on stage and that has an impact on the audience. And you leave transformed and with a, an energy to transform. And I've been in so many plays wonderful moving plays where the audience is wrapped and the audience is ready to go anywhere, that the play has taken them anywhere. We are in ecstasy. We are in a state of ecstasy and we are in the hands of those actors. And then the curtain comes down and we go and buy an ice cream and head out for a taxi and go home. And that's it. The whole thing, the energy that was in that theater that could have transformed the world, it dissipates. And so, um, you know, I, I look back to a more radical theatrical tradition, you know, of Brecht. And, you know, there were others who've, who've thought about this, that theatre should not just exist in the playhouse, that it should maybe start in the playhouse, but that it's for, you know, everyone. And, and that tradition looked very much to religion uh, as an integration of spectacle and public engagement. And, and yet in times of repression, and I covered Pinochet's Chile, yeah. uh, art, 
and theater. Uh, I mean, the two major institutions that stood up to Pinochet were actually the church and yeah. the theater. Yeah. Um, I think I think you're right. I mean, I think people do walk out and are sort of anesthetized, um, but that's because of the sort of uh, the culture that's upon them. Once everything's stripped down, I mean, yeah. Susan Sontag went to Sarajevo while it was being shelled and surrounded, and did waiting for Godot, and that has a power to speak. When 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 all of those false comforts are gone, I think oftentimes the inability to hear and see, as you point yeah. out, is uh, is the narcotic of... Well, I think it, it comes back to this idea of how seriously we should take works of art. And there's this assumption that even though we pay reverence to art and art's so important, etc., we don't really want to allow it to transform things. Uh, and whenever a very powerful work comes along, um, just the way in which, I don't know, there's just this... Um, you don't, wouldn't, one wouldn't, wouldn't want to call it a conspiracy, but it almost feels like a conspiracy to, to strip it of its truly transformational uh, power. As I said, you know, we all know films or plays, you've come out and you think, I want to change my life. It, you know, this piece of work has urged upon me an agenda that is so different from everything around. But the problem is that by lunchtime the next day, you've kind of forgotten it. And, you know, by the next weekend, it's, it's gone and there's something new at the, at the theatre. And, uh, you know, and, and that's it. So we don't have follow through. And again, to look at religions, you know, religions are all about circling. They're saying, you know, there were these insights, there were these powerful insights, so we're going to go back to them, because, you know, you knew them on Sunday, but you'll forget them by next Saturday, so we're going to go back to them. And um, modern culture, well, it's almost like it can't take its own high points seriously enough. It undermines itself, and this constant search for the new. Now, the new is great, because you keep on good things in the new, but this, this sort of... Um, this neglect of repetition and rehearsal seriously undermines the capacity of any one work of art to really affect change. When you have, as you certainly do with Judaism and Christianity, uh, systems of thought that were written by an oppressed class, mm. to what extent uh, is that theology aimed for the oppressed? Um, I, I was in a refugee camp in the war in El Salvador, and they were decorating the camp for uh, the Day of the Innocents, which, and I knew the story. I'd heard my father read it in the pulpit. Uh, and I asked one of the refugees why it was such an important holiday. And they said, because on this day, Jesus became a refugee. Jesus had fled with Mary and Joseph to Egypt to, and before Herod came and killed the children. And I, who had heard the story from a position of privilege, in some fundamental level had, although I could recite it verbatim, didn't understand it. Mm. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, if you look at the antebellum South, you had two strains of the Christian religion. Yeah. You had black, the black church, and you had the white slaveholding church, which used the Bible, of course, to defend slavery. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think there's a, a theologian, James Cone, has made a pretty strong argument that uh, in many ways he actually calls the white church, and not just the antebellum church, but the white church, uh, he calls it the antichrist. Mm -hmm. uh, because, uh, and he talks a lot about lynching as sort of our modern cross. Uh, and, and I just wanted to, you know, as we close, if you could address that issue, that mm -hmm. issue of justice, that issue of oppression, yeah. and to what extent finally religion, you know, or religious theological systems in some ways may not have been written for people like you and me. Mm -hmm. Look, I think there's something immensely important in a message which is there in all the major faiths, which is a defense 
of the vulnerable, the weak, um, the child, uh, the dispossessed, um, and more broadly, the self that exists outside of power, money, and status. All religions are at their purest on the side of that, in, in a way on the side of the, um, the, the statusless person. Um, the secular world is a winner's society. You know, we live in capitalism. Capitalism rewards productivity and economic merit and demonstrable economic success. This is an immensely punishing ideology that leads to madness at its most extreme, because only a fraction of the members of this planet, and even the members of the United States, can ever live up to that ideology. Under that ideology, a huge portion of the world's citizens and American citizens are losers. And that can't be right. And where do the losers go? What, what ideology is it that has led half the population to be defined as a loser? This can't be the right philosophy. And what religions have very cleverly and intelligently done is to say, no, that's the wrong ideology. That what matters is not power and status and the possession of vast castles, but the inner self, the inner being, the stuff that a parent would love in a child, that uh, outside of power relationships, when we love outside of power relationships, what we love in people is the pure person and that that's what matters. And in different forms, that's what all the religions say. Love the powerless, love the child, love the weak person, love the mortal self, um, not vanity, not power, etc. And we need that voice desperately. And what saddens me is that um, it's really only the faiths that put forward that voice articulately. It used to be put forward by Marxism and by the left. Unfortunately, the left was discredited by all sorts of economic positions, and it failed to capitalize on really what was its richest area, which was its emotional analysis of what we need. By focusing itself as a scientific economic cure to the ills of mankind, it fatally shot itself in the foot. So we're now in a world where there's capitalism on the one hand, and faith-based uh, organizations on the other. And what gives the faith-based organizations such strength is that capitalism labels so many people losers. Uh, I think, uh, as the absolute ruler of the world, if ever I were, I would say what we need is a non-faith-based ideology which recognizes the dignity and humanity of the vulnerable and the weak and the child. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much.